if you are new tonight. Uh, last week, we began our study of First Peter, and we learned from those opening verses that the Apostle Peter is writing to a network of churches that are scattered across Asia Minor. Okay? Peter's writing to a network of churches across Asia Minor, a church of Jews and Gentiles, and they had believed in Jesus, they'd repented, believed in Christ, churches were formed in those regions. But now, as a result of their choice to follow Christ, these believers were facing opposition. They were ridiculed, and they were made fun of, they were probably ostracized from their communities, they were slandered by their neighbors, some of their old friends. And this newfound opposition had caught them off guard. They were surprised. And they were probably pretty unsettled by it. I mean, I'm assuming we would be too, um, if the culture just all of a sudden turned on us in a, in a hostile way. And so Peter writes to steady these churches. He's writing to steady their elders, their leadership teams, in the face of this rising opposition. And he's writing to help them know how to navigate a world that's opposed to them. A world that's hostile to them. And he's writing to help them live a fruitful life, even now, right in the middle of that hostile world. And our situation is not that far away from this first century church. The church in every age has faced opposition, and ours isn't really much different than many of the other ages. Our hearts are tempted in all the same ways that their hearts were tempted, and so we need the same message of 1 Peter, uh, just like those first century churches needed the message, just as much as they did. Now, the first thing that the, these churches in Asia Minor, the first thing they needed to know if they're going to be stabilized, and the first thing we need to know, too, is who we belong to. Who we belong to. When we face opposition, we have to know and we have to believe deep in our bones that we have been chosen by God. We've been chosen by God the Father. Or as Peter says in verse 1, that we are elect, that we are chosen exiles. And in fact, it's because God chose us, because He converted us, that's why we are exiles in the world. We now live in a world that is not our ultimate home. At least not yet, as we're going to see today. We don't belong to this old earth. We don't belong to its evil system anymore. We belong to the new earth as God's chosen people. And so, the result then is that we're exiles here on the, on the old earth. He's going to say later in the letter that it's, we're like sojourners just kind of passing through. Our citizenship isn't ultimately here. It's not in America for us or in the Roman Empire for the Asian churches. So, Peter will say, if you're here tonight, that we have to know our identity. We have to know who we are, that we are chosen, and because of that, we have become exiles on earth. And that's Peter's theme in the letter. We saw that last week. If you're not already there, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. That was Peter's theme, elect exiles. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, he's going to spend the first part of this letter helping us understand our election, what it means to be chosen of God. And then he'll pivot, and he'll help us to understand our exile, 
how to think about that and the implications of being exiles here on earth, how we should live while we're here. And so it's this identity, our identity as elect exiles, that will help us endure opposition and live fruitful lives while we're here, and even while you're at liberty or wherever you might find yourself. And so the first part of this letter really unpacks what it means to be chosen by the Father. And for Peter, the way he knew that these believers were, cho- were God's chosen people, the way, he were, the way he knew that they were God's elect, is by one thing in particular. He's going to talk about it in our verses tonight. It's by the new birth. By their experience of conversion to Christ, their regeneration. And here... He describes it metaphorically as a new birth. A new birth. And this new birth is connected to election. It might not be evident right now, but as, as he works through the chapter, chapter 1 and into chapter 2, it's going to become very evident that these themes are connected. But the new birth is connected to election. It's how Peter knew these believers were chosen by God. The Father chose us before the world began. We looked at that last week. But he made it a reality in time and space at our conversion when our Father brought us forth as new spiritual babies. As his own offspring, we might say. As his own children. So we can say that to be chosen then means that we are part of God's own divine family. To be chosen means that we are royal heirs. We are part of his newly created humanity. And as we're going to see, this new birth into God's family brings with it all kinds of blessings. And when we get our minds around this, when we let our teeth sink into this identity, when we see what God has done and will do for us as his elect children, this will bring us tremendous joy like it did for Peter. It's going to stabilize us as we encounter suffering and difficulty in this life. It's going to help us live fruitfully while we're here. And so tonight we're going to wade into these first verses here and try to unpack this concept of what Peter calls the new birth. And then we're going to also look at the blessings that are associated with this new birth. Now as we're going to see, Peter can't contain himself as he starts this letter. He gives the the intro, the greeting, you know, in the first first couple of verses. And then verse 3, it's like the letter explodes. He bursts forth in praise to God when he thinks about this gift of new birth. It fuels his joy, and he wants it to fuel the church's joy, our joy tonight. And so I'm calling tonight's message, Rejoicing in Our New Birth. Rejoicing in Our New Birth. Peter wants us to see just how blessed we are that we are in God's family. And when we embrace this aspect of our identity... We grab onto it in faith. We believe this deeply. It will stabilize us in our lives. It's going to stabilize us in difficulty, and it will help us to live fruitfully. All right, so if you would, let's read the text this morning, this evening. I get my, what time it is, right? It's been writing a sermon all day. I got a time warp. Okay, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you rejoice. So as we wade into these verses, we're just going to first unpack this merciful gift of the new birth. And then we're going to look at the blessings that the new birth brings with it. I think that's how Peter packages this first opening here. So first we'll look at this, the, the, the merciful gift of new birth in our lives. Like we said a minute ago, Peter cannot contain himself when he starts talking about this thing he describes as new birth. In fact, this entire paragraph is actually one giant praise to God from verse 3 all the way down to verse 12. One sentence, grammatically. It's one sentence of praise to God. Why is that? Because he's the Father, and he is the one who is responsible for this merciful gift to us. That's why Peter's praising him. It fuels Peter's joy in God when he thinks about how merciful God has been, how Peter himself and the church that we've been mercifully swept up into God's family. Then later in verse 6, he's going to say that we rejoice in these realities too. Even right here in the middle of our suffering. But we'll get to that next time. For now, when it comes to this new birth, Peter highlights some things about it, okay? Just initially as we're, as we're unpacking this gift of the new birth. And initially, he, he shows us that, that this new birth really showcases God's merciful character. This new birth we've received kind of puts God's mercy on display. It highlights how merciful his character is. It's in accordance with his mercy. So do you see that in the, in the text? After he praises the Father, he says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. According to his great mercy. It's in his actions of the new birth, whatever that means. This is in keeping with his merciful character. It's highlighting his mercy. And what this means for us is it, just put it in lamest terms, it means we don't deserve this at all, okay? Not one iota. The gift of new birth, this gift of belonging to God's very family, it shows the depths of his great mercy. And that's because we are great sinners. Our very first parents forfeited their status as God's children when they rebelled against their creator, their father. They chose death instead of life. They rebelled against the good command of God. We inherited that sin. We perpetuated it ever since. Later on, the Apostle Paul writes that we became fools in our sin. We died, spiritually speaking. And humans have been sinning against God since that time. No one has ever, ever deserved re-entrance into God's family. And so the fact that he is re-admitting his prodigal children, is an act of his great mercy. It's not something we deserve. But that's what's glorious about God. Is he a God of justice? Yes. But is he overflowing in mercy? His mercy is great, Paul says. He is overflowing with kindness and steadfast love even to enemies like us. That's the kind of God he is. And Peter says here that the new birth showcases the greatness of his mercy. And it showcases his mercy in particular because he is the one who initiated it. Right? 
He's the one who initiated our new birth. Not only did he choose us, like we saw last week, but he also, you notice the language, caused us to be born again. You hear that? He caused us to be born again. And in fact, if we, if, if we dial it in a little bit more, uh, the metaphor is pretty specific. <clears throat> Literally, it's a new begetting or a re-begetting. Now, most of you have probably never even said that word, beget, much less really kind of get the nuance of, <laughs> of what's going on here, and that's okay. Begetting, okay, is dad's role in procreation. All right? It's dad's role in conception. Today we might say something like, he fathered that child. That's the idea of this verb. Okay? It's a, the metaphor is of procreation, meaning that we belong to God's family in the most profound and intimate way. We're not simply adopted. Put it that way. As glorious as that is, as true as that is, that adoption category is a category in Scripture, especially with the Apostle Paul. But Peter's point here is that we're not merely adopted, as beautiful as that is. We're blood, so to speak. We've been spiritually fathered by God himself. We belong to his family line, and he initiated this, not us. There is some questions, right? Like, okay, <clears throat> how exactly does he father us? How does this begetting happen? Well, later on in the same chapter, Peter tells us. He gets specific with the metaphor again. Look what he says in verse 23. He's, in the context, he's telling us to love each other with brotherly love, like love your spiritual siblings. Verse 23, since you have been born again, same verb, okay? Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, you see that? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, here's how, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and in all of its glory like flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's imperishable, in other words. The imperishable seed. And this word, what is it? Is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So, back to our question. How did God father us? How does he, how does he beget us? We were spiritually conceived, to keep the metaphor going, we were spiritually conceived through his word, Peter says. And then down in verse 25, he says, this word is the gospel that was preached to us. So if we put it all together, God fathers us, he begets us through the gospel. The gospel is preached, and through the truth of the gospel, he wakes you up. Through the truth of the gospel, he enlivens your dead heart. Through the truth of the gospel, you begin to see God and yourself in a whole new light. You're broken and convicted. You know you need Christ. Christ becomes more than just a referee for you, telling you what you, you, you can and can't do. He becomes your savior, your redeemer, your rescuer, your king. And you respond in faith. You can't not follow him. He's too compelling. That's the new birth. That's being brought forth by the gospel. These kinds of things are signs that God's seed 
His imperishable seed has brought you forth, that He's fathered you, that He's given you new life through the gospel. So let's just stop here for a second and just ask the question, has this happened to you? Have you experienced, I didn't say, have you asked Jesus into your heart? I said, has this happened to you? Have you experienced this new birth through the gospel? One of the privileges of being a college pastor is that I get to help a lot of people think this through. And sometimes it can be a challenge, especially for younger folks. A lot of you have had the privilege of growing up in Christian environments, going to church. Many have said a prayer at some point in their childhood. But the point here is that the new birth comes through the gospel. And here's what that means. It means someone who has been fathered by God will recognize their sin, right? Someone who is fathered by God, has been fathered by God, will recognize their sin. They'll see themselves not just as victims. They won't make excuses. But they'll see themselves actually as sinners against the good God. Not it's just sick and it's somebody else's fault, but it's my fault. I am sinful and rebellious and I deserve punishment. And they'll feel the weight of this. They'll know they need forgiveness. They'll know they need mercy. And they'll know there's nothing they can do in themselves. They can't say enough prayers. They can't ask Jesus in their heart enough times. There's nothing they can do. But then someone fathered by God will also look away from themselves to Christ in faith. They'll hear the good news that He earned, Christ earned the perfect righteousness that they need. They'll hear that he freely gives it to all who trust in him. And they'll also hear that he took the punishment from God they deserved so they don't have to be punished. And they will rejoice as they believe the promise and receive forgiveness of sins. That's being fathered by God. And then there will be some significant changes, an overhaul from this spiritual fathering New desires will spring up, desires that weren't there before. A desire to know God. A desire to live for Him. A desire to be with His people. A desire to hear His Word taught. A desire to love and serve others instead of living for yourself like you used to do. <clears throat> you might have said the Christian thing, but like that, it was all about you. The sin that you once loved, whether publicly or in secret, that sin you hate now, And the God you once hated, even if it was secret resentment in your heart, you now love him because you've seen and tasted that he's good. And you know that you're far from perfect. You know it deep, right? Painfully aware. But you are different. You are not who you used to be. And that's some initial evidence that you have been fathered by God, that he's brought you forth as his child. But if that's not you, maybe your life's just been all about yourself. Like if you're honest, like you just boil it down, that's all about me. I think about me, it's kind of me, myself, and I. Like that's, that's, what, that's what my life is about. I prayed a prayer as a kid, let's say, but nothing really changed. Do you know the good news of this moment? Is in God's sovereignty, you are here. You're under the, the preaching of the gospel that God uses to bring forth his children. And you can trust Jesus right now. You can turn from all of that self-absorption and experience the new birth right now. 
And if that's your desire, you're saying like, ah, I don't know if that's ever been me, but I, I, do, I do want that right now. If you're feeling that call, don't refuse him because that's probably evidence. He's calling to you. He's begetting you. And if you're unsure, if you need more help kind of navigating this, because you don't know whether you've experienced this new birth or not, definitely don't hesitate to talk to somebody. This isn't some scare tactic. This is a, a call of the gospel for you to, to you to hear, for you to hear and believe. And we love to help people get clarity on that. The fact that you're concerned is a very good sign. Now, we could keep talking about this, but we've got to move on. We've got to get to really the meat of what Peter wants to leave us with tonight. He doesn't simply describe this new birth. I left your last point out. It happens when we hear the gospel, okay? This merciful gift of new birth happens when we, when we hear the gospel. But Peter doesn't stay here. He doesn't stay in this, just this gift of new birth. He moves on from describing the gift to to showing us some of these, you might think of them as glorious blessings that come with this gift of new birth. Glorious blessings. So in the time we have left, let's, let's, look, at, let's look at some of these, these glorious blessings of this, of this new birth. Peter says that God's fathering of us results in a, a few additional benefits, some blessings in the rest of these verses, meaning that if we've been brought forth by God, if, if that's happened to us, if we've experienced a new birth, then we can be absolutely sure of other glorious blessings too. And he describes the first of these in verse 3. He says, We are born again to a living hope. To a living hope. One of the first blessings, Peter says, that we have because of our new birth is real hope. Hope that he describes as living. Living hope. So what is he getting at here? Well, this living hope is certainly in contrast to a dead hope. Right? A vain hope. Misplaced hope. Hope in the wrong things, we might say. Hope that's going to let us down in the end and result in our destruction. So get this, guys. Every human on earth has hope. We have hopes. We set our hope on things. We have something that we're depending on. We have something that we're looking to. We have something that fuels our lives and that we're eagerly anticipating. Sometimes we're tempted to set our hopes on good things, things like marriage or family. They're good things for sure, things that we should, should be pursuing in faith. But when our hope, when our hopes are set on these things, Everything revolves around us getting the thing. All of our hopes are wrapped up in finding that special someone or having children or leaving a legacy or having financial security or having friends. And it terrifies us if we don't have these things, to think of not having them ourselves. And we think life wouldn't be worth living. That's the sign of a false hope. That's a lie. Life wouldn't be living if I don't get X. Life is worth living because these things are not ultimate. They're important, yes, but ultimate, no. They are passing away, is another way we could say this. They won't last. They belong to this old creation. So in that sense, marriage is a dead hope. It won't get you beyond the grave. And the saddest thing about unbelievers is they flit around from dead hope to dead hope. 
when they realize one of these hopes can't sustain them, they're off to the next and the next. And the deception just continues to perpetuate. But Peter says, if you've experienced the new birth, if you've believed in Jesus, you do not have a dead hope anymore. Your hope, Peter says, is alive. It is a living hope. But that's an interesting way to say it. A living hope. What's he getting at? Well, I think he gives us some clarity in the next phrase. Notice that we have this living hope, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, the resurrection has secured our living hope. And I think Peter's saying here that our living hope is the hope of future resurrection, future life. And we can know that our resurrection is secure. We can know that it is sure, that our hope won't, isn't a false hope, because Christ has already been raised. He exists right now in a resurrected body. He's the forerunner. He's the evidence that this isn't a false hope. He is the evidence that death hasn't had the final word and won't over all who follow him. And so Peter's saying here that our new birth brings with it a hope of resurrection. What this means is that if you've been converted, you can know that you will be resurrected too. Or we could say it like this. Just as we've been regenerated internally, our bodies are going to catch up one day. Our bodies, too, will be raised from the dead, and that is our living hope secured by Christ's own resurrection. So why do we need to know this? Why is Peter saying this here? Because our main concern when life is hard, when we are suffering, is what? That we are going to die. Right? If you just drive it all the way to the bottom, you might, there might be other peripheries, but it's like going to die, right? Like that's the end. That's the bottom. That's the thing that all, all of it hits. That our life's going to end. The grave is the end. And then you might think, well, there's heaven, right? Like at least we're going to continue on maybe in some bodily, bodiless existence, you know, like flitting around in heaven. Like what is that? Don't know. Uh So we're tempted to preserve ourselves. We're tempted to think this is all there really is. The real good life. We might talk about heaven and those kinds of things, but this is where it's at. And so we're tempted to live for these pleasures, thinking that this is all there is. We're tempted not to lay it on the line. To not make sacrifices. Because we forget that we have a living hope, the hope of a bodily resurrection. A resurrection that is guaranteed to happen to us because it has already happened to Christ. And that is a blessing. That's not all. Not only do we have the hope of a future eternal body, but we also have a future land. In Peter's words, an inheritance. An eternal inheritance that is awaiting us as well. And that's our our next glorious blessing of this new birth. Peter says that in addition to resurrection hope, the hope that my body is going to be resurrected, I'm going to be reunited like this. In addition to that, 
The new birth also brings with it another glorious blessing, an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 4. This is an incredible blessing, and it makes perfect sense with the new birth metaphor. Since God has fathered us, since he has made us his children, we also have a share in the family estate. We have an inheritance. The greatest inheritance conceivable to the human mind, which is the new earth. Now, if you're wondering how I got there, okay? it's like, how did he get from inheritance to new earth? Right there. Well, it starts with the word itself, okay? The word inheritance. And it's background in the Old Testament. If you were to trace this word out, like 99% of the usages, almost all of them, there's like one or two exceptions, but in almost every instance, this word refers to the inheritance of land. Land. Like land. Okay? Not some spiritualized land. Land. Earth. So when we see this term here, if we know our Old Testament, we know the promises made to Abraham and his descendants, our default assumption, when we see this word, will be land, at least in some sense. And now I'm very interested. So how, how, does, how does all this connect? Well, full disclosure. <laughs> I spent a whole day on this in my study, and I didn't have time to write it all out in my notes. So we have one of two options. I'll try to give you the Cliff Notes version, okay? They're like, no! That's code for we're going to be here another hour. Tell me how. We have to rewind the clock and think back to sort of a, a theology of the land, right? When it, when it comes to how we, tra- how we think about land and its fulfillment in the scriptures. So if you, if you rewind all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, you have Adam and Eve being commissioned to fill what? Fill the earth. So from day one, or six, I guess, um, from, day, from day six, metaphor, okay? Um, I'm already losing time. My point is that from, from the beginning, it's been, a, it's been worldwide in scope, Right? The goal of Adam and Eve was to, was to replicate and multiply God's image to fill the earth, the entire earth, worldwide in scope. That's, that's all the land. They were given the Garden of Eden as a cultivated space. And the idea was that as they continue to have offspring who are in the image of God, who trust God, reflect God's glory, that his glory through his, through his offspring, through the image of God, would spread over all the earth. And the earth would be cultivated, or the garden would extend, and in that way, God's unique presence among his people would spread over all the earth. There's a lot there, okay? We've got to keep moving. Obviously, Adam and Eve failed in their creation charter as God's covenant sons, as a covenant partner. So they failed. They were exiled from the land, from Eden. But God's purpose for creation didn't stop. He continued the covenant. He brought it to bear again with Noah he purged the earth and re- reinstituted the covenant with Noah for this worldwide, this worldwide 
multiplication to fill the earth with his glory. That continued on and got particularized in Abraham, in the Abrahamic covenant, with his offspring as well. And they were promised uh, a unique land, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, with unique boundaries and a border in that land. With the same intention, that they would go into the land, that God would give it to them as covenant partners, and that they would reflect God to the world, to the nations around them, and that they would all know that this is, that this is God, and the nations would come to know Yahweh. And as a result, the people would be multiplied as the sand of the seashore, as the dust of the earth, stars of the heavens. The people of Abraham would be multiplied as Gentiles would come in, and the land would extend. The borders of the land would extend. Now, I have text on all this stuff, so if, we can talk about it if you're really nerdy on that. But um, the borders of the land in the prophets in the Old Testament were, in, were always anticipated to expand. Other texts like Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 anticipate that a Davidic king, the descendant of Abraham, would reign over all the nations. His, his reign would be worldwide in scope. It would, it would encompass every nation. And Psalm 72 and other places have interesting language. It actually talks about the, the borders of Israel, but it expands it to the end of the earth, indicating that the, that the reign of the Davidic king and the quote-unquote borders of Israel would expand to encompass all the nations. And this is why Paul can say in Romans 4 that Abraham was an heir of the world. Abraham was an heir of the world in Romans 4. And if we, again, if we fast forward, we see that king has come in Jesus. He's been enthroned in heaven, but he is returning in Revelation 20 to earth to reign from Jerusalem over all the nations of the earth and to bring into submission all those nations and to expand, by implication, the borders of, of the land to encompass all of the creation, to bring everything in submission to the king. And then Paul says that he will give the kingdom to God and will inaugurate or, or bring into full consummation the new creation. The new creation. Or it's pictured in Revelation 21 as the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. So, that wasn't too long. Left a lot out, but hey. If we come back here, 1 Peter 1, what is Peter envisioning for us? What is our inheritance? Well, I think he gives us more hints in how he describes this inheritance. He says that it is imperishable, meaning it's free from death, it's free from decay. It doesn't perish. It doesn't devolve. It doesn't degenerate at all. But it's maximally fruitful. It's maximally life-giving. So it's imperishable. Number two, it's undefiled meaning it's free from any impurity. It's free from sin. It's free from the curse. Right now the world's defiled, isn't it? It's groaning. Romans 8, we're about to see that. But then this inheritance is free to flourish as it was intended to flourish. It is undefiled by sin and the curse. It's number three, it's unfading, meaning it is free from the natural ravages of time. The passing of time doesn't diminish its glory, doesn't diminish its beauty, or its vitality in the slightest. It's unfading. And number four, it's protected. Or literally, kept in heaven. 
meaning no one, no enemy of God can plunder this land. No enemy can ravage it. No enemy can destroy it. No enemy can take it away from you. It is guarded, kept in heaven, in another realm, away from the grubby paws of our enemies. Now, I think it's clear by this point that this land isn't anything here at present, at least not in its present form. It's something that's coming, something that's barely conceivable to us. It's the future new creation, the new earth that Christ promised to his meek followers, right? The meek shall inherit the earth. Not only will we not be floating around in some bodiless kind of existence, praise the Lord, but we will also have a universe to take dominion of. We will have meaningful work, work that is maximally productive and fruitful. We won't be racing death. The accumulated knowledge of industry and technology will be incredible. And it will be all rightly motivated for the glory of Christ. And it's hard for my mind to even hold that together, what that will be like in the new creation, on the new earth. I hope I'm a gardener. That'd be cool. All right, never mind. It's supposed to be funny. So, my point, all right, it's right to say that we are exiles here. Peter says that. It's right to say this world is not our home, but we shouldn't think it won't ever be. Because one day, coming quickly, it will be renewed. The new Jerusalem will come down from heaven. It won't have to be kept in heaven anymore. It'll come down from heaven. Like Revelation says, its beauty and productivity and glory will far surpass this old world and we will see the potential of a creation unstained and untainted by our sin. And that is your inheritance. Like that belongs to you because of your new birth. You have a new royal lineage and a new kingdom to inherit. This isn't pretend. Why do we need to know this? Okay, well, let's just do a thought experiment. Imagine if when you turned 40, you knew you were going to inherit $10 million. How would that impact you? I mean, you think of a few ways, right? Like, you're a little less concerned, <laughs> right, about what you have, your current investments. I'd probably be a little more open-handed, right, with my resources, because it doesn't matter. Like, I'm going to inherit $10 million in three years. A little longer for you guys, but... This illustration, though, doesn't even begin to compare with the reality of what is coming. To the wealth that you will receive at the return of Christ. It can't compare. And if we know we have a future land, a future inheritance that will far eclipse this one, we will not be ensnared by the world and its enticements. We won't be deceived into thinking this world has something to offer us. We won't be deceived in thinking that we will be satisfied if we can just get the right house or get the right job or get the right whatever. We will not be. And like Hebrews says, we will be able to, quote, joyfully accept the plundering of our property since we, will, we know that we will have a better possession and abiding one. Hebrews 10.34. We'll be generous with what we have 
because we know that something even better is coming. Now, as good as this has been, there are still two more glorious blessings associated with the new birth. Let's look at them quickly so we can get the full effect of what Peter's aiming at, okay? Our new birth brings with it the blessing of a protected faith. So you're thinking, oh man, resurrection, new earth with Christ. That sounds so good. What if I don't make it, right? Like, I'm young. There's a long way between now and then. What if I apostatize? What if I forsake the faith? Peter says your new birth guarantees your preservation. It guarantees that you will keep believing until the end. Or as I say here, it brings with it a protected faith. Look at this. Verse 5. He says this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now he's going to talk about you. Okay? You who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Peter pivots from describing the inheritance to describing the heir, right? He describes us. And he's essentially saying, just like the inheritance is protected, so are you. The inheritance is protected for you, and you're protected for the inheritance. It's an incredible statement. Well, let's... Let's look at this really quick, like some of, the, some of the fine details. He says, we're protected by God's very power. The almighty God who created heaven and earth, who no man or angel can rival, he is the one doing the protecting. It's his power. Like, pop that, right? Like, you can't get any higher, more power, more protecting power than God. Where are we guarded from? Trials? Temptations? There's an onslaught of trials and temptations right now. We're not protected from those. But notice what Peter says. God protects us through faith. Now that is very interesting. God is the one who is guarding, but his protection is actualized through our faith. In other words, the way God guards us is by granting and sustaining our faith, right? He brought us forth. He chose us back last week. He brought us forth, the new birth, caused us to be born again, meaning he granted your faith. And this is a pledge to sustain it. He won't let any of his true children, any of his offspring that he himself has fathered to apostatize or forsake the faith. He will keep us believing by his mighty power. That is one of the glorious blessings of the new birth or of being fathered by God himself, his protection of our faith. And this is incredible. Doesn't this bring so much assurance and so much comfort to us? Even if we face what would seem to shatter our faith, circumstances that would cause us to fall away in our own minds, God won't let that happen. I know that sometimes, kind of confession here, sometimes, like in the dead of night, my mind can wander off into these like hypotheses, right? Of like, what I'm going to have to face, what my kids are going to have to face, 
in coming generations, all those kinds of things, what, what are we going to have to face? What kind of persecution? Am I going to be faithful under this type of persecution or that type of persecution? And it's just like, it's terrible. It's like I'm, it's not, not productive, right? Uh, it's unnerving. But a passage like this just quells all that fear. No matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, no matter what trials the Lord mercifully brings in our lives, no matter what he calls on us to endure, he will keep us believing. You can rest in that. He won't let the enemy quench our faith. He won't let it extinguish its flame. I don't know about you, but like I, I look at my brothers and sisters in the other side of the world, Nepal, wherever, China, Cambodia. I mean, they're getting, some of them are getting slaughtered for the gospel. And I think, like, what if that happens to us? Like, we're a bunch of fat, rich Christians over here. Like, what's going to happen? Like, how are we going to be? Have you ever had that thought? Like, what if, what, if it, what if it's on our doorstep, like, in the next five years? What if China takes us over and we have concentration camps and they're putting us in the thing? Like, like, that's where my mind goes. And a text like this quells that fear. If God brings it, he'll sustain our faith. He will. We don't have to fear what's to come. He'll guard our faith. And ultimately, this guarding of our faith is unto a certain end. He guards us until he rescues us. And that's where all this is headed. That's our, our final benefit of the new birth. It, it guarantees, the new birth guarantees that we will be ultimately delivered from our perilous and hostile enemies. That we're going to be rescued. That we're among those who will be rescued. Saved, to use Peter's language. The new birth culminates in our final salvation. Into verse 5. He says, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And the point here is that our new birth assures us that the deliverance is coming. The salvation is coming. Our Father won't abandon us. He will send our elder brother, our king, back to deliver us on the last day. Now, it's important to note here, we typically think of salvation as something we have already. That's true. We got it, right? We've been saved. The Bible talks about it in that category. But the Bible does speak about us as going to be saved, kind of a future orientation. And this, this sense dominates 1 Peter and Peter's use of this term salvation. It's always forward-looking. Our salvation is in the future when Christ returns, when he's going to rescue us, when he reveals to the world who he is and who we are, when he unveils his judgment of our enemies and he rewards our obedience, our new birth assures us that this salvation, this deliverance is coming and it's coming soon. It's ready to be revealed, he says. So the point here, as we step back, the point Peter wants us to walk away with from this passage is how richly blessed we are. This is what it means to be chosen by the Father. It means we're given new birth by him. That's where it all sort of starts in the, in the time-space continuum here. We're granted new birth. We're brought forth by him. And then as a result of that, we belong to God, and now the world opposes us because it's opposed to him. We might be poor and ostracized in this life. We might be overlooked. We might be slandered now. We might miss out on opportunities. We might be passed over in the workplace because we are Christians. Your family might think you're, you're narrow-minded for the rest of your life, but make no mistake, if you have been born again, if you have experienced a new birth, 
This shows, declares, and will become known at the return of Christ that you were chosen by God. And our new birth means we have been readmitted into the royal family. No matter what we face here, no matter what your background has been, we have the sure hope of resurrection awaiting us. We have an inheritance that puts Bill Gates' kids like in shame, right? And in between, while we wait on that, while we eagerly anticipate the new heavens and the new earth, Second Peter says they're coming. In between, we are protected. God is guarding our faith now, and he's ultimately going to come back to deliver us fully and finally very soon and to dole out all that we just talked about. What glorious blessings we have, all because of Jesus. What we're going to see in the next few weeks is these realities that we're talking about right here have massive implications in our lives. Massive implications. We talked about how it motivates our praise, right? And that makes sense. You can see how Peter, why Peter was so excited to talk about these things to the church. Why he was so fueled with praise. But not only does it fuel praise, but it fuels joy. And it fuels joy right in the middle of trials. We're going to talk about that next week. Peter says, in this, everything I just talked about, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. It fuels joy. He's going to go on to say, down in verse 13, he's going to draw a major inference here, and he's going to say that, that this, these truths are what realign our hope. They like pull our hope to be where it needs to be. Because he knows that we're tempted to put our hope in the wrong places, even as Christians. So he's going to call us to set our hope fully on these things. And then finally, it's going to motivate our obedience, our holiness in the here and now while we're, while we're on, in this exile, he says. And he keeps this family theme going, this idea of being fathered by God and being in the family. He's going to, call, he's going to say we're going to obey as children in verse 14. He's going to show how, that, how we, we should obey now. He's going to show us that we should revere our father, fear him in the time of our exile, he says, because we've been ransomed. We should love our spiritual siblings with brotherly love because we're, we now belong to each other. We're in the, we're in the household of God. We belong to his, the, ro- the royal family because we've all had this, been fathered by God. He's going to say we should long for milk to grow up spiritually, not stay as infants, but keep growing as we long for this milk. So he, keep, he works this metaphor, I mean, of, of this family of God all the way through, really, verse 2 of chapter 2. And then he's going to bring it to a climax at the, at the, in the middle of verse, in the middle of chapter 2. So my point here is, is in the next few weeks, we're going to see some massive, massive implications if we can sink our teeth down in this identity of being chosen by God, being brought into his family in the new birth. Amen? Father, we're humbled. We're overjoyed. We're excited to anticipate all that we are going to inherit by your great mercy. So we pray that you would take this identity chosen by you, as as belonging to you, as part of your family, and you would embed this deep within us. Open our eyes to help us see the implications in all the various areas of our lives as we we study this this out in in the coming weeks. But I pray that tonight, that we would leave rejoicing, praising you along with Peter, saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again.
And it's that blessing we give to you now in Jesus' name.